0: Woo! Scorcher out there today, Nelson.
1: I think it's Fahrenheit 451 degrees. Time yeah. to burn some books.
0: You know what else will burn in this heat? Your pets, man. So you guys out there with pets, please keep them hydrated and away from that direct sunlight.
1: Yeah, it was a it was a fun episode last week. I mean, yeah, it was. I, I went home and uh, started loving on my cats. You know, petting them. Hey, good for you. Hey, you know, you know who else loved animals?
0: No, who else loved animals?
1: Hitler. Hitler loved animals.
0: Hey, I think we should put Hitler on the couch. I don't
1: think you have any notion of the true strengths and depths of the opposition to our work. There's a whole medical establishment, of course, baying to send Freud to the auto da fe. But that's says nothing compared to what happens when our ideas begin to trickle through in whatever garbled
0: form they're relayed to the public. The denials, the frenzy, the incoherent rage. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, in the studio. About
1: 105
0: degrees outside and 110 degrees in the studio. Nelson.
1: Jason. What's going on, buddy? Not much. It has been hot all year long here in southeastern North Carolina, and it doesn't show any signs of stopping.
0: No. You know who else is hot right now? Who's that? Hitler, because he's burning (laughs) in hell.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I don't believe in hell.
1: To be honest with you, I don't believe in an eternal hell either. Hey, personally, I think you sort of make your own hell.
0: Yeah, well, in terms of temperature, we're right, just right there at it. Yeah, We're close. So Adolf Hitler, man.
1: Yeah, we haven't put a person on the couch since our first person, our first episode with Freud. Good point. I'm looking forward to this.
0: We'll do that when we come back right after the break.
1: Talk to us, Nelson. Yeah, Adolf Hitler. I mean, look, what does that name mean, right? I mean, that's a fascinating historical character because I've always said when I talk to my students, evil is fascinating. People are drawn to it. I mean, who would you rather read a book about, Stalin or Mother Teresa? I mean, all respect, but evil is interesting, right? There's a grab that evil has over us. And when we talk about Hitler, I mean, the name is synonymous with depravity, with sociopathy, with pure evil, and I do want to get into, uh, you know, some of those psychological nuggets when it comes to this guy. But like, just from the word go, Hitler's childhood seems to have been geared toward some sort of awful and despotic future. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big questions, I think, thought experiments that we here on the couch like to do and probably I imagine the audience likes to do as well, is sort of think aloud. Do you believe that Hitler was born, or do you believe he was made?
1: Nelson? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's actually something I was kind of going to ask you right off the bat, is in your professional opinion, are we dealing, when we talk about somebody like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, are we dealing with a sociopath? Because I think there's a strange comfort in assigning a medical diagnosis to somebody with these type of ideas, this ideology, and just, oh, this is sociopathy. You know, almost like a Forrest Gump thing, like evil is as evil does.
0: Yeah, I think it's easy to ascribe malice and hatred, despotism, to those that we think of as monsters, think of as the other, think of as otherworldly. I mean, honestly... I like reading books that make me feel better about myself. I like watching television that make me feel better about myself. And I think the audience would probably agree. I like listening to podcasts that make me feel better about myself. So, you know, you were asking about Mother Teresa and reading a book about her. I don't want to talk about Mother Teresa because (laughs) she would make me feel terrible about my life. I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough good. But Hitler, man, I mean, no matter how bad I've been in my life, by comparison, I feel pretty good. And I think most people would agree. You know, you, you learn about Hitler and it feels like man i'm not doing so bad after all i'm not such a bad person but this question that you know i wanted to start with and you were going to ask me the same thing i guess is do i think he was born or do i think he was made in that i mean do i think if he were if he was evil if he was indeed a sociopath was that born in him did he have that predisposition at birth or did he have the predisposition to be anything and anyone like you or me or mother teresa right but the circumstances, the environment within which he was born and raised, did that create the monster he would become?
1: Well, let's talk about that environment, uh, and maybe we can, you know, give yeah. that question some context. Because he was born uh, to Alois and Clara Hitler. Uh, he was the fourth of six children, but the first of Clara's to survive childhood. And he always had a really close emotional bond with his mother. He was very close to his mother.
0: Kind of like Norman Bates with his mom, right? I I mean, I I imagine some people think that that's probably the way it was. Sure. That it was some kind of weird codependency, some kind of weird psychopathy between the two of them, but... Wasn't it pretty normal? I mean, she was a doting mother, I understand, but it wasn't... She was a
1: very doting mother. uh, By all accounts, in his early years, Hitler was an outgoing, uh, energetic, relatively normal child. He had an alcoholic, abusive father who was, believe it or not, obsessed with beekeeping. Yeah. I don't know if there's any nuggets you can glean from that. I'm not
0: sure if you told me that or if I'd heard that somewhere else, but that is a strange hobby. But, you know, I do find that anecdotally at least, a lot of people that I know who grew up with abusive dads in particular tell the story of how their dads were into some kind of weird animal trapping or keeping. Isn't that odd? My father-in-law said that his dad, a very abusive man in his own right, was into, I think, pigeons? That's odd. And I I grew up with a kid whose dad was really abusive, and they were into catching
1: foxes. Okay, weird.
0: (laughs) Don't really understand that. Um, Maybe there's a Freudian explanation for that. Anybody... out there, listening has a Freudian interpretation for that. I'd like to hear it.
1: So, look, just real quick, like let's dabble in birth order uh, because <laughs> Hitler was the fourth, but the first to survive childhood, and there were two other children from previous marriages, half siblings, living in the house with Alos and Clara. So, I'm not sure where we'd put Adolf in the birth order.
0: Yeah, he wouldn't technically be a middle child, at least biologically speaking. But but he also actually wouldn't. he
1: would be you know in reality. Um, so I don't, I don't know how that works. I really don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I've mentioned this guy before, Frank Sulloway He's written a pretty impressive book called Born to Rebel. And the thesis of his book is just basically that you can predict some things, generally speaking about people, based upon the order within which they were born in the biological family, uh, whether you're the first child, middle, or the last. And fundamentally, he looks at evidence to compare that birth order of a person to their personality traits specifically looking at things like risk-taking, things like becoming successful in life, maybe because of some of that risk-taking. And it turns out the oldest family members are typically the most conservative and the most, generally speaking, successful financially. Uh, but again, their ideas kind of stay within the lanes or the boundaries. They don't go out and do anything extraordinary, right? However, it's the young youngest that typically are the extremely liberal progressive ones that take risks take chances they are dabbling in all sorts of things from the occult to alcohol drugs you name it i think hitler may have dabbled in the occult a little bit there's Perhaps. one biographer of hitler uh, that talked about that yeah he
1: he certainly was somebody who was you know so- somehow mystical later in his life you know a mystic of some kind that i don't know what precisely his religious beliefs were i don't think he Yeah, I've heard everything from non-believer to
0: atheist to deist. uh, Yeah, he's well. I don't opportunist for sure.
1: Certainly, he believed it himself. Yeah. Um, So look, as Hitler ages, you know, six, seven years old, Mm -hmm. the abuse with his father gets worse and worse. As a result, his relationship with his mother gets closer and closer. Uh, Yeah, she's uh, she's uh, meant
0: to protect him. She's protecting. Mm -hmm.
1: They're protecting one another. Is this this is typical in a family where there's where there's abuse?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't think that's out of the ordinary for one child to sort of side with one parent, particularly if they're both being abused and sort of team up, as it were, actually physically team up and or at least emotionally team up against that one abusive parent. So that seems.
1: Well, it seems to have worked for, for Hitler in the early going. I mean, he was a bright, energetic student. Uh, he sang in the church choir. He even thought about going into seminary when he was older. So he certainly had some religious beliefs as a younger man. Yeah. But then um, when he's 11, uh, Hitler's brother dies. And this seems to have like a really big impact on Adolf Hitler. Uh, he went from being outgoing and energetic to something like a recluse. He was angry, uh, lashed out. His grades suffered. His behavior in school suffered. So we obviously know where he ends up. How can the death of a sibling impact a... someone in that Cause way? Because I, I don't think we... We'd really look at that he's 11 years old very fragile in terms of a developmental state obviously not everybody becomes Hitler is
0: that a factor is something we need to consider
1: sure I mean now we have the abusive father and then we add to that this death of his brother with whom he was very very close
0: uh, it's hard to say I mean thankfully not most people will lose a sibling when they're 11 years old that's number one but of those who do they probably have other people most of them other people in their life that they're close to that they can lean on emotionally right I mean, you said yourself Hitler didn't have a close relationship with his father by any means. Right. Very close to his mother. It seems to me that this was his one and only real ally. I believe I also read in one of the biographies that Hitler, you know, when he was 11, 12, 13, somewhere along in there, he had one really good friend. Yeah. One really good friend. So it wasn't like he made friends very easily, necessarily. He wasn't the kind of crowd pleaser or the extraordinarily loquacious and persuasive. Orator that he w- he would one day become at least not not that age. No. But long story short, it's pretty unremarkable. Um, yeah, I mean it would it would affect you, but I don't think there's anything in the loss of a of a sibling that would necessarily uh, cause you to rage and go into a violent fit or anything. That being said, there is good evidence to suggest that Hitler was emotionally volatile, emotionally immature. Maybe he had uh, attention deficit hyperactivity. Uh, maybe. He was just um, struggling to focus and to keep um, his emotions in check or in perspective. That's why, you know, maybe he had that really, really close relationship with his mom. Most kids, by the time they're 11, you know, don't need mom to do everything for them. And it's my understanding that Hitler's mom, again, doted on him and just kind of did everything for him. Kind they of understandable were, they were very when you
1: consider that you know, not all most of her children didn't survive. <laughs> right. So. And then vice versa. Then, uh, sure. that,
0: that would mean that he's losing siblings. That would mean that he also doesn't have any kind of relationship with his father. So they were just trying to survive. So uh
1: Hitler's dad dies three years later, very, mm-hmm. very suddenly, dies of a heart attack. And his performance at school continues to go downhill. And it's hard to imagine at this point uh, from a practical standpoint that this guy who in all accounts is just completely and totally unremarkable uh, that this is the person who is going to murder, murder 6 million people to be directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of 53 million people. Um, it, it's just, you would think, right? You would see this. Or you would see the makings well, of it. Maybe I mean, in yeah. retrospect, do we see anything yeah. in this so young you're man's about, life?
0: you're talking about you know building building a narcissist, perhaps. Are we, right. Do we
1: see anything at this point yeah. in his life at yeah. 14 where you're like, yeah, oh, wait I a think, I think, a think you start
0: seeing it with his art. I think you do. I mean, this guy has a penchant for art, at least drawing. His mother acknowledges it again with that sort of same doting style that she had all those years. She's telling him, "Oh my God." you're going to be an amazing artist. You're going to be great. You're going to be, you know, the next Da Vinci. He believes this. I mean, he really does believe he's special when it comes to art. Right. And I mean, if you think about it, That's this guy's true. been beaten all of his life pretty much. He's seen siblings die. He doesn't have a lot of friends. And now his mom, the only real person he's ever had a a true loving relationship with perhaps, at least the only one left, says I believe in you, you know you're you're special,
1: so Abraham Lincoln once said uh, during a bout with depression that he would gladly die, but that he had not done anything worthy of being remembered and Hitler's early years really seemed to indicate a life of great irrelevance, yeah,
0: as most of us will find at age eleven or thirteen
1: yeah but you, know, you but in the background you have this mother telling you you're special. telling you this is gonna. You are going to be something. Yeah, you're special. You are special. But, you know,
0: again, how many mothers tell their kids that they're going to be special? I don't know. Maybe it's the, I don't know, maybe it's the number of times she did it. Maybe it's when she did it, how she did it. I'm not sure. I mean, I know my mom told me I was special all the time, but I'm not sure that I believed her in that deep down sort of way that you would believe you know, maybe your college professor who picks you out of a crowd of hundred in a lecture class and says you're special. Sure, Um maybe a mom's a supposed remember. to tell you, right? Mom's supposed yeah. to say, "I believe in you." Mom's supposed to like your artwork. I mean, she's been hanging the stuff on the refrigerator since you were in preschool,
1: even when it's not good. Even especially when was it's not plenty good. Plenty of times, you Absolutely. know, as a father of young children, it's not good. No, no, it's not. But good. we always tell them it is. We always so look. So Hitler's fourteen. Yep,
0: his dad's dead. Dad's dead,
1: and right now you're saying, from a psychological standpoint. Nothing great, but nothing that really stands out. No, as maybe
0: a, maybe a little bit of narcissism and entitlement developing there. Gotcha. Because now mom can dote on him even more. She can do even more for him. Sure. Um, it's my understanding that his sisters were not allowed the freedoms and the opportunities he was allowed when, when they were teenagers. Right. That's when he definitely was a
1: true. But that's also not a they typical would, for a family in Europe yeah, in the late nineteenth century.
0: Right. You even see that even in in the South. Um, in my sure, own sure. childhood, the, the girls in the family would learn how to do chores and cook and the boys would sit around and wait to be served. So
1: so it's interesting that you bring up art being special yeah. because I feel like the next part of our story after Clara Hitler dies is going to take us to a place with with which our audience should be familiar. Where there's nothing but special people.
0: Yeah, nothing but special nothing people.
1: Nothing but special people. P- probably the... City of special. Uh, And so we're going to talk about that uh, right after this. So look, man, we went through Hitler's early life. Let's talk a little bit about these formative years. Jason. I think these years are so important Uh, and so overlooked, really. Um, Not all of them, because we know some of the story, but... These years in this great city. So Hitler's mom dies in 1907. It was at this time that he applies not once but twice to art school in the city of Vienna. Both times, they're like, dude, pound sand, you can't paint. Yeah. Uh, And they they, they said, man, you got some pretty good detail in your architecture, but you can't do human figures. So somebody suggests, hey, maybe go to architectural school, but he doesn't have the credentials. So he's denied there, too. Jason... There's an old story about Hitler's anti-Semitism right, arising out of his rejection from art school. I think that's a little simplistic, and we'll touch on that in a bit. But are there any psychological nuggets we can take away from a rejection like that that can help build a case for a monster?
0: Man, I don't know. I mean, I've certainly thought about this throughout the last handful of years, just— Listening to people, blue-collar people, working-class people in particular who follow, you know, the the former president, who get really, really upset about these people coming across our borders to take our jobs. And, I mean, they're just seething. I mean, some of these people, I have to admit, are people that I'm familiar with. I know. Some of them are, you know, at least loosely connected to me through social media. And they seem to have turned into these seething Absolutely. Um, um, animals. They're rabid about about this belief that there are people coming from specifically the south of our border to take our jobs. Well, and, Hitler and
1: Hitler did believe that about the Poles at this time. He couldn't find work. In fact, after rejection, Hitler is left with literally nothing. Mm. He's got no prospects. Hitler has no money. He's got no education.
0: And so he blames it on the Jews.
1: He blames it on everybody. He blew through his parents' inheritance, and by 1908, or 1909, rather, he's forced to bounce night after night from homeless shelters to hostels to men's dormitories. Mm. And this is for four years. Jason, I remember reading something, a study during the Great Recession that said that the emotional impact, particularly to men, mm-hmm. of long-term unemployment can be permanent. That the impact can be greater than the emotional impact of divorce. Which kind of makes sense to me, right? Because if I say, hi, my name is Nelson, mm-hmm. the next thing I almost identify as is... I am an instructor at a community college, yeah. right? Especially for men. Now, and even more so back during this time period, this is who I am. I am a blank. So you're talking about a young man, you know, in his formative years, 19, 20, 21, 22, who's got nothing.
0: Yeah, and raised within a culture that says, say what you want about the toxic masculinity movement here in America right now, but I mean— Men were supposed to be toxic and masculine in Germany back then. Amen. So today, you you hear people, mostly intellectuals, talk about what's killing uh, people. Specifically, young uh, working class men, particularly in the South, is this idea of disease of despair. Have you heard that term before? I have. Yeah, this idea that it's not, you know, it's not um, some contagious disease. It's, it's right. depression. Yes. It's drug use.
1: Well, if you were infected with that disease, I think the time and place um, in which Hitler finds himself is probably the worst place to be because yeah. we have this new character, this other character, uh, the city of Vienna. Now, we mentioned Vienna earlier in one of our shows when we were talking about uh, Sigmund Freud. This was a multicultural oh, and Oh, cosmopol- It's woke, baby. It's a it woke a, city. It was. It was woke before woke was a thing, right? Right, right. It was it's maybe as multicultural and diverse a city as any city in the entire world in the early 20th century. Sure. And this is where Hitler wanted to be. Yeah. Right? This yeah. is and So this is you got this guy this who thinks he's
0: pretty special.
1: In a special place. In a
0: special place. The rent is, you know, out the roof. He can't find a place to live. He can't get gainful employment. He's getting rejected from art school after art school. He can't even apply to an architecture program.
1: But that's the thing. I don't think it's as simple as an art school. This entire world that he so desperately wanted to be a part of, and that just rejects him. It kind of humiliates the guy. So for four years, he's left with nothing. Could this period help unlock the psychological key to what ends up driving Hitler? I'm going to bring this up real quick as well. This was a very Jewish city. This was a very Jewish city. I believe, in fact, <laughs> Sigmund Freud, the father of this podcast, the father of modern psychology.
0: big Jew himself, wasn't he?
1: Uh, well, I think he ended up being a non-believer, certainly of Hebrew descent. Uh, I think okay. he started banning all of his work, or burning it. And he said, you know, what progress we've made. Fifty years ago, they would have been burning me. Now they just want to burn my work. So this is the place we find ourselves. So is this rejection, do you think, part of the story of what drives Hitler toward anti-Semitism and toward far-right politics? I
0: mean, I think it's certainly part of the story. I think it's also interesting how in many ways Hitler was becoming the father that had abused him, that he loathed, that he didn't think twice about uh, when his father died. You know, here's Hitler showing his own true colors, getting into this sort of conspiratorial belief that it's the Jews that are taking all of the opportunities away. I think his dad was an
1: anti-Semite as well. Oh, absolutely. So it's
0: sort of a recapitulation of that early family environment playing itself back out. So here's another observation
1: that I want you to weigh in on. Men who often feel like their masculinity or their their place in a group or in society is being challenged often turn to violence. Like we know about the psychological profile and makeup of mass shooters, right? So I want to come back to this point later in a much broader context, but we see Hitler starting to become fixated on far-right politics and positions. Uh, the mayor of Vienna at this time is a guy named Karl Luger. And Luger is an unapologetic anti-Semite. Uh, he blames the misfortune of lower middle-class I think, Germans in Vienna directly on Jews. Um, so this is the mayor of Vienna that Hitler is really drawn to very, very early on. And he's not only exposed to this, he admits later to being inspired by it, I think he mentions this during his uh, trial in 24. So imagine you're a young man in a city that has turned on you, shunned you, you're homeless, you're powerless, you're angry, and then you start to hear people pointing the finger directly at a group. I know things have been bad. These are the people who are part of the problem. Not part of it, but really the point of the sword. These are the people who are putting that sword in you. How might a message like that hit differently when somebody in this kind of vulnerable position is exposed to them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it would have a profound effect. Uh, in fact, if you turn to nineteen nineteen, just about five years before he writes Mein Kampf. Nineteen nineteen, he writes this uh, this letter. And uh, he's he's basically trying to answer the the Jewish question here.
1: In nineteen nineteen? Yeah. Do you have the letter? Yeah. Yeah. Give me some give me some give me some nuggets. Dear
0: Her Heimlich, well, the danger posed by Jewry for our people today finds expression in the undeniable aversion of wide sections of our people. The cause of this aversion is not to be found in clear recognition of consciously or unconsciously systematic and pernicious effect of the Jews as a totality upon our nation. Rather, it arises mostly from personal contact and from the personal impression which the individual Jew leaves almost always an unfavorable one. And it just goes on in this kind of mealy-mouthed diatribe. It's a little bit scattered and it's a little bit sophomoric. Immature. A little immature. Okay, I don't think that letter got a ton of traction.
1: So you're saying— But he's
0: able to put some of this stuff down on paper for the first time.
1: So are you suggesting then that the ideas themselves at this point— I think, would it be fair to say that the anti-Semitism and the emotion and the ideology behind it, uh, that's there?
0: It's already— there, there may be bubbling up, but he's starting, I think, to, to figure out what to, to do with it. To, yeah. to He's he's starting to think about it a little more in an organized way, a little more deliberately. It's beginning to kind of come together. It's becoming canonized. Right. And he's looking for an audience because right. we can turn to the Beer Hall Pusk.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to do that right after we get to uh, World War be or World War One because I do think there are some formative things that happen uh, during that experience. That yeah. Let's sort back
0: of, up then and talk about but, World War One and Hitler's involvement in it uh, right after this. So yeah, I may have gotten ahead of myself a little bit.
1: No, no, because the pooch is going to be important.
0: Yeah, you want to talk about? But we uh, can't but have the pooch. Yeah, we can't, can't to talk about pooch without the. Uh, <laughs> Hitler Hitler signed up for the military, right? Yeah, but he some, wasn't drafted.
1: This is funny. Sometimes I think that um, you know history is just a, a series of unlikely, mishaps. <laughs> it is <laughs> unlikely, though, right? events, isn't it? Because listen, uh, right before World War One, Hitler is drafted into the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Army, right? But is deemed unfit Fit. for service. Yeah. A medical exam found him to be lacking vigor.
0: Again, just just <laughs> he's, more insult, right? He's, lacking he's not vigor. intellectual enough to go to school. Art school. He's not <laughs> smart enough or shrewd enough to find a job and procure gainful enough employment to live among the elites in Vienna.
1: And again, and it-
0: now he gets he gets this idea. I'll just join the military, man. I mean, the military takes anyone, right? Everyone. They need a good, warm, young, strapping body, and he's told. You just don't have the vigor, man. You're not masculine (laughs) enough. You're not male enough.
1: Right? I mean, that's so interesting to me. Yeah. That's so interesting to me. So what does he do, right? He goes to Munich and he enlists and is accepted almost certainly by accident. Yeah, He was not a German citizen. He was not a German citizen.
0: In fact, that would come back to possibly haunt him a little bit later on when he was put on trial. Yeah. Because if you were not a German citizen and you were charged with some treasonous act, you were supposed to be like throw the book at me, get deported from the country. I mean, you name it.
1: So I don't want to skip ahead too yeah, yeah. far, but Hitler later became somewhat obsessed with like his hometown, anybody finding out about his records, uh, who he oh, was. Oh, Lentz, was. right? Lentz. Yeah, Lentz. And a lot of people you know, attribute that to, There's, there, I'm sure you've heard, there's an old uh, rumor that Hitler himself was Jewish. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, quarter Jewish I, I based upon
0: some kind of strange I, I, I uh, interpretation of his lineage. I think it all goes back to the fact that his, what, his mom's,
1: uh, Some, yeah. His
0: mom's father is not on a birth certificate. And so Can there's I, sort of several uh, ways in which this has been interpreted by historical experts. At least if you look at it several ways, his name would not have been Hitler. <laughs> yeah, it, know, it would true. have been something very strange sounding. So, Schauschenbach or. Sch- oh, what that? <laughs> so try saying that with a Heil on the front of it.
1: Play an Occam's razor, though. If yeah. you were one of the most powerful men in the world mm-hmm. you came from nothing and you hated your father i think isn't there something cathartic in destroying your hometown
0: yeah probably so i mean i, I it's kind of a two for one right you get I, to, I sh- you get to you get to destroy your hometown which is a symbol of all the things you hate of all your insecurities all your you know powerlessness and then you also get to potentially preempt anyone from getting the records you know, on your ancestry <laughs> right because let's face it it would be embarrassing to find out that you were a Jew. It would also be embarrassing to find out that your last name really wasn't Hitler. It would be embarrassing to find out that your mom and your dad were like first cousins or uncle and niece or yeah, you know, sure, whatever else sure. was, was claimed.
1: This non-German citizen during the war does find some purpose. Um, he recalls the war as being the greatest of all experiences, which is kind of odd. I don't think many soldiers uh, who fought and died in the trenches of World War I would ever utter a sentence like that. No. But his ideas about German pride and nationalism at this point have really solidified. He is decorated, serves with distinction. He is a messenger, but, you know, really is at almost every major battle.
0: Snickelgruber.
1: Snickelgruber.
0: Snickelgruber. Alois Snickelgruber. That was his dad's real name. Really? Yeah, Hitler should have been Snickel. Yeah, I didn't even know that. It should have been Adolf Snickelgruber. Heil Snickelgruber. That would have been a mess.
1: That just sounds weird. Yeah. It sounds weird. Um, Sorry,
0: I had to interrupt. Yeah,
1: no, no. (laughs) Then the war ends and Hitler takes the attitude that a number of people take, right? Germany didn't lose on the battlefield. Uh, They just kind of gave up. And he finds out while recovering from a mustard gas attack. And just like that, he's kind of back to nothing, to square one. He's angry. He's without prospects again. And he's almost 30 years old. But fortunately for him, his country is kind of in the same box, just sort of without direction or purpose after World War One,
0: And economically in A disaster. real trouble, right? Yeah. A
1: disaster. The Allies were obsessed with punishing Germany and blaming Germany. I mean, I think it's hard to overstate, you know, sometimes World War One gets overshadowed by World War II, mm-hmm. but this was the war to end our, all wars. People uh, could never have imagined this level of death and destruction and violence. And,
0: and it didn't stop after the war, right? It certainly didn't. It didn't stop after D-Day, man. It just began.
1: No, I'm talking about World War I, War Sorry, yeah, but Battle of the Bulge. Uh, no, World War Two. <laughs> you can tell I'm
0: not a historian. <laughs> you know what you gentlemen.
1: should do. You should take my history class.
0: You should, <laughs> you I, I just my... don't know what they're called. No, but guess, no, we come back. We get the ticker tape parade. But meanwhile, our allies, still, specifically Germans, are really feeling the heat now. They're
1: feeling the heat. And, and well, you know, what, tell
0: tell tell the audience what we mean or what you mean, since you're the history guy. So look, what do you mean about leveling this payback against them? Uh, yeah.
1: So there's 414 points in the Treaty of Versailles.
0: Okay. Right?
1: 400 of those points are dedicated to punishing Germany. In fact, in 2011, Germany just finished paying off the debts that they had to pay as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. Wow. So it took 96 years, I'm sorry, 94 years for them to actually pay that back. Now, granted, there was a pause somewhere I think between 19 40s, let's say 33 and, 40, and 45. Yeah. But um, it was actually really important later on to Germany to finish paying that obligation off from that treaty. Uh, and I think really that had more to do with World War II than World War I, because after World War I, the Germans felt like they were unfairly blamed. And a lot of people in Europe and the United States agreed with that position. They didn't think it was fair that one side was just maligned and and outcast and... Within Germany itself, a, a very prideful nation, um, there's, you know, political desolateness and there's a lot of room for mystics, saviors, conspiracy theorists to sort of weave their way in and yeah. become something. New parties, possibly. And this is where we start to transition into uh, into the pooch and into um, Hitler becoming something of a a national figure overnight because of the pooch. After the war, he's left without prospects. He stays in the military. And they ask him, hey, would you like to uh, spy on some of these new political parties and tell me if they're insane, crazy, dangerous? Tell us about these new political parties. And he agrees. He agrees. He's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll do it.
0: So we're spying on these political parties?
1: We're spying on them. We're
0: starting to write letters now?
1: Yeah, um, we're
0: starting to garner some support. We're we don't have an internet, we don't have chat rooms, we don't have uh, truth do, social. But, but we've we do got have, we do
1: have a good beer hall.
0: We got a good beer hall, we and do. ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about your local bar, your tavern that holds twenty or thirty people inside and twenty or thirty out. We're talking about these expansive um, places like warehouses that would hold, you know, upwards of a thousand people.
1: Jay, we talked uh, just a minute ago because I, I do want to focus just a minute on the political climate in Germany, because it's so central to what happens to Adolf Hitler, all right? Remember we said when a man is questioned, when his masculinity is questioned, that there's this tendency to revile. We talked about mass shooters. So my question is, can what works on an individual level, a tendency toward violent extremism, when an individual is humiliated, work on a large scale? Like, say, when an entire country experiences humiliation the same way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can tap into something that's there. Um, again, it's going to be tough without the internet. It's going to be tough without um, a way to communicate with a lot of people at once. His ability to write and get his ideas across in written form weren't going to do it. I mean, I, I, I'm i not sure if he knew how bad of a writer he was, but it was pretty bad.
1: Oh, it was terrible. it was a he, terrible writer. But when he gets up
0: um, he in this in this beer hall for the first time, is that in Munich?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so what they do is they say, Hitler, will you spy sure. on this party? He does. He reports back that no, the party is not dangerous. It's not a threat. I've been offered membership in the party. The military, the army encourages him to join. And so he goes to the first meeting, says a few words, sort of scoffs at them, goes back. No, it's not a threat. They ask him back to speak because he has like a little outburst. He goes back. He actually joins the party. The National Socialist Party. I mean,
0: the Nazi Party. Now,
1: the, the Weimar Constitution provided for a democratic form of government, but these different political ideologies sprang up all over. It wasn't just Nazism.
0: No, there was a bunch of different ones. I mean, communism, communism was big, right. absolutely. But they were only about 10% is what I understand at that point.
1: Oh God, no, no, no! The National Socialists in 1927 numbered about three percent. I think they held their first party rally in 26. Wow, so it was tiny, a- and oh, it was very tiny. But and it so the was, was the, Wellmer, th-
0: the, Wellmer, the, Wellmer, the Wellmer was Weimar the Welmer Republic was the big one, right? The Weimar Republic yeah, yeah.
1: was the, the Republic of government. Yeah. Uh Yeah. So, uh, so the National Socialists. Let's talk about them for a minute. They were yeah. given to racism, nationalism, and extremism very early on. But upon becoming a member and a leader of the party and a leader of the executive committee Hitler really highlighted these ideas and created a message for nazism i think that's what you yeah, were alluding to he was taking some, to but in he taking some of the
0: wasn't he taking some of the tenets from like the conservatives as well as from the the more liberal
1: Absolute, absolutely absolutely he, he was
0: finding just sort of that sweet spot absolutely. kind of in a way that you know modern republicans could probably uh learn a thing or two you're, not for the purpose of purging 6 million people but right. for no, the you're, purpose you're, of like winning an election man i mean if you just get on board a little bit with like worker rights, get a little bit on board about, you know, uh, a workers bill of rights, I think the Republican party could do themselves a big favor.
1: Well, let's let's not mince words. Hmm. Adolf Hitler was a populist. He was somebody who wanted to appeal to, to broad swaths, masses, yeah. broad swaths of the electorate. And
0: he would say what he needed to say.
1: But people sort of scoffed at this guy. Well, of course. The wild gesticulations, yeah. the the shifty and slanty eyes i mean this guy yeah. was sort of like a a freak he was almost a hindrance for the cause yeah he was, he was almost a
0: caricature of himself wasn't it he? really was
1: yeah. uh, people sort of if they knew about him sort of like oh yeah hitler's that guy yeah yeah it didn't really but look membership grows slowly and steadily throughout the early 1920s and in 1924 germany is still mired in a disastrous political and economic struggle and hitler attempts to <laughs> sorry to laugh he attempts to start a revolution.
0: Now, that's 23 when he starts this revolution. 24. I thought it was 23 for sure. Because well, they went to jail in 24, I thought.
1: I uh, believe, look up the date. I think of it's the, the end of 23. It's November, November 23. So, yeah, he's, he he starts this, uh, this revolution. This revolution. He's going to start this the pooch. coup. The beer hall right? pooch. Gets a it couple hundred so people German. all round up. Let's just admit that. was yeah. so German to start a revolution. Sounds like a beer, doesn't a beer it? Beer sounds hall. like a
0: beer. Pooch. A pooch. Let me have a pint of pooch.
1: <laughs> that's what he. That's what Hitler ordered, pick a, baby. Pick a a pint of pooch.
0: A, pine of pooch. Yeah. yeah. So he gets these guys riled up, man, and he realizes, look, I didn't do too bad. I mean, I got, I, I turned the crowd inside out. Yeah, you but know? it was a, uh, it was a pathetic
1: attempt. Yeah, but give it him was credit. He joke. did like
0: lead the march. Like he was like, we're going through the town, and we're gonna, we're gonna march to the capital. We're gonna kick some ass. But we're what? Overturn. And throw but,
1: uh, well, there was no yeah. Idea. Well, there he was. Gets, ass, they get. They get. They go through kicked. the town. Get on the <laughs>
0: northern side, right? <laughs> Somebody and, uh, got their ass kicked. There's several hundred to a thousand, um, I guess, well, officers. Officers on their knees and in firing al- position. Hitler
1: almost died.
0: Twenty four inches,
1: right? Twenty four inches from changing the world. Yeah, twenty four yeah. inches.
0: And I understand in the melee, he falls and hurts his shoulder. He, so
1: yeah, he was like over almost as
0: quickly as it started, and he's thrown in the paddy wagon. Yeah, it's but, court date,
1: yeah, and and the, the court date was like a national sensation. It was something not to be missed. Yeah,
0: that was kind of interesting to me. Here's this guy who is really just known in the beer halls, just and kind of a joke. A couple hundred people have you know sort of rallied around him, and then he gets this trial for trying to overthrow the government of Germany. And you've got 50 to 60 journalists that yeah. show up, many of them foreign journalists, to cover mind, this thing.
1: In his mind, the trial was like a one-man play.
0: Yeah, it's the show. It's this like, was going like, to be he, his
1: life story. He's going to yeah. tell his whole story.
0: Yeah, and he did. He started out He did. He did. started out with um, that same anti-Semitic statement that he had made before at his rallies or the, at his, in his beer pooch. The same thing he would go on to write um, multiple times in Mein Kampf, and it was that— Look, I am unapologetically an anti-Semite. But don't worry. I didn't come to that just because I hate Jews for the sake of hating Jews. I come to that, honestly, after deliberation and thought, right? Jews really are terrible people. They really are a burden, and they really are takers.
1: So I think it's very important, even though this episode is about putting Hitler on the couch— To sort of talk very briefly about the overall attitude toward the Jewish population of Europe in the early 20th century, yeah. mid-20th century. That message was not necessarily falling on a that group is. of people who didn't want to hear it. Uh, there was a reception. At least not outside there was a, of Vienna. There was a, a slight receptiveness to it. And no, Karl Luger, we said, was vehement anti-Semite. He was the mayor of Vienna, so yeah. maybe the Viennese population wasn't, like, wild about right. it. But a lot of people made distinctions in this time period uh, between what they termed good Jews yeah. and bad Jews.
0: Jews that work for me and Jews that work against well, me. Well, good Jews, Jews that had take.
1: assimilated and Hitler never— Yeah, no, Jews that had assimilated and Jews that had sort of, you know, not and Jews that took and didn't appreciate their culture— It's also important. This is less than 1% of the population of Germany was Jewish. And almost all of that population considered themselves German.
0: But you got to have an enemy, right? You need a common enemy. enemy. If you're going to rile a big enough group of people up, you got to have a clear message with a clear enemy. And, you know, even though he didn't have a clear message or a clear enemy at first, uh, he was working towards it with each and every subsequent speech he made. My understanding was. He played around with words sure in did. much the same sure way did. we would, we would find uh, contemporary political campaigners today yep. going to different spots and playing the the hits, right, and seeing yep. which ones take and which ones don't. I mean, you guys can use your own imagination in terms of politicians that I'm referring to uh, in a contemporary way, but he would use words like Bolshevik Jew
1: You're right to kind You're of right. capture That's a, very a good bigger point. group of That's people, right? He, he could point. catch a
0: bigger swath if he used... Bolshevik and Jew together. Right. (laughs) That's a very good point. In the same way you hear some modern politicians use things like, um, in their demagoguery, they use words like the compound stuff that don't even necessarily go together, like socialist Democrat, Um, uh, woke (laughs) liberal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, you can be woke and not be liberal. You can be a a good person, a tolerant person and not be liberal. Sure. And I know some liberals that are bastards that... Are not woke at all, so hey, I, but it's, it's better if you put those words together, yeah. If you want to, you want to,
1: well, look, let's uh, let's talk about putting wife. some of those words together. Yeah. So, you know, Hitler is tried, obviously, the trial is a big show, yeah. Uh, he's in prison, he's sentenced to five years, he serves nine months, and in that yeah, time, let's, let's, let's
0: talk about that judge again. Uh, the judge who is part of the five or six panel judge, yeah, uh, uh part of the five or six panel arbitration, yeah. Um, he's the only like official judge. The rest of them were like citizen judges. And Hitler does such a, I guess, convincing job um, defending himself that all of the citizen judges were like, you know what? He's innocent. We don't even (laughs) want to give him anything. And it's my understanding for the the crime he was accused of, he should have got a minimum of five years to life. He could
1: have gotten life in prison. And if he's not a German citizen,
0: he's supposed to be deported. I mean, he's supposed to be out of there. But the judge says, you know what? We're going to give him some time, but only... Six to nine months, because I really believe he loves his country. He's a nationalist, <laughs> yeah, he and he did serve country. in the military for five years for, um, for Germany.
1: You know what's interesting? <laughs> um, this same
0: judge, by the way, had recently let a guy off very easily who had attempted or did um, assassinate a mayor of one big city
1: in Germany. When we say you should be careful when you say innocent, because what these people mean is justified.
0: Justified. They yeah.
1: they have done what they have been accused of. Right. Justified. But these judges say, well, you know. They did it from a it's place a of love. mitigating circumstance,
0: right. You know, did it, it from w- a, pl- w- a love of country. W- if you're doing it for a love of country, there's a moral reason for doing it. Then it's more so understandable. So I'm
1: not trying to, um, you know, make Downplay any comparisons it, yeah. or equalizations. No, but it sounds but a lot like January the 4th. I was morning. going to tell you the January 6th, 6th excuse me. hearings, a lot of those people have said, look, I, you are accusing me of having, um, you know, bad intent or I corrupt intent. I love my country. That's the reason I did it. I love my a- country. And— to their credit, most of the judges, that in fact, most, that, right that has that. never that has never worked as a defense. No, uh, at nor, least not nor yet. Nor should it be. At least not yet. Well, but it shouldn't Trump
0: be. Trump hasn't stood trial yet.
1: Yeah, but you shouldn't be allowed to say, well, I really believe that. It, that would allow anybody to create an alternative narrative within their own head.
0: Well, I don't and, want to get into executive powers, but, I mean, that was one of the arguments Bill Barr and others were making. In the lead up to all of these um, accusations, was that you can only accuse a president of something bad if you can be inside the president's mind at the time they made that decision or said that thing, because it's about intent.
1: Yeah, that's. Um,
0: of course, that doesn't work anywhere. Except, yeah,
1: that's true only to a point. I've
0: never heard it outside of explaining the president's. Um, behavior. You you just
1: mentioned words, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of Hitler's words, some of his most famous words. So during his nine-month sentence, he writes Mein Kampf, and I want you to talk about what we see in some of the book, Um, just discuss a few of the ideas and the passages, and then you can tell us what might be going on, and what I think we can both agree now is an increasingly dangerous brain, and we can do that right on the other side.
0: So Hitler's in prison, and ladies and gentlemen, it's not like any prison that you might imagine today. He's <laughs> I want to um, go to prison. <laughs> he's in um, Club Med. Yeah, so to I speak. definitely
1: want. They had go a to special
0: name or distinction for those kinds of prisons, honor of prison, or
1: yes, it was like an honor prison. Yeah, it was prison on the honor system. So Hitler writes his book, My Struggle, um, and he talks about his struggle as a racial struggle. He's explicit with Aryans at the top battling their biggest enemy. The Jews. Mm. Have you ever have you read passages? There's no mincing words. Adolf Hitler is committed at this point to a racial battle, and he's telling everybody that I'm committed to a racial battle. And my question is, did people not believe him or did people not care?
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> most thinking people, most people with compassion for other human beings recognize that when you start throwing words around to describe Anyone, let alone a group of people, oftentimes people that you live right beside that are part of your own family, that's dangerous stuff.
1: Jason, I didn't, I didn't really want to get into any modern equivalences, but I, I feel like at some point it's, it's somewhat it's unavoidable hard to get around, yeah. when we're talking about these parallels. So I want to read for you this passage. This is uh, Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf on, on Jews. He is and remains a complete parasite, a scrounger like a harmful bacteria always spreading further. His presence produces the effect of a parasitic plant. Whatever he settles, the people who welcome him will be wiped out eventually. Talk about that dehumanizing yeah. language.
0: That's social psychology 101. Is it uh, really? Yeah, we see that That's so with scary. the Stanford prison study. We see that with a variety of studies. When you name someone... A thing. you Well, it's it's easy, easy, easy to hate, to work against... Uh, to coordinate your efforts if you've got a common enemy and it's easier to have a common enemy if that enemy is something that's not human. And so Hitler was very, very shrewd in calling them parasites. He was shrewd in this language he used. Exterminate, it's clinical, it's solution, it's, you know, he wasn't saying, we need to kill your next door neighbors. Right. Likewise, modern politicians aren't saying, we need to kill the brown-skinned people who love this country and work very hard and just want to escape oppression from their other country and be a good citizen. No, you've got to call people names. And the uglier and the more like a parasite, virus, or bacteria, I think the better. That is, if you want to make people go along with you, if you want to make it more palatable, if you want to make it easier for a group of people to continue listening to you and taking you seriously. Look, if I tell you, man, I had to have my house exterminated, you would automatically assume I've got rats or I've got roaches. You wouldn't assume I was talking about my mother and father-in-law and my niece and nephews. Right. Right? Or my next-door neighbors who were displaced because their house caught on fire.
1: Right. Right.
0: So in order to do
1: that, but do you see any You've got parallels to today? Yeah. not just between Absolute. not just talking about immigration, no. but just talking absolutely. about our political opponents. Yeah, we well, these are sick.
0: They're sick people. people. They're monsters. They're they're this. They're that. I mean, and every despot throughout history has done this. Slobodan Milosevic. Do they do in it on Yugoslavia? purpose, or is yeah. it
1: is it just? I mean, I'm sorry, oh, obviously I they do it on purpose? Is are they
0: unconsciously just, coming up with these words, not even realizing that that's a nice little way of tricking people, right. including yourself? Into right, being okay right. with it, right? That's
1: that's my question.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think that that begs the question: if you've got um, a couple or a family who are cruel to one another verbally and they call one another names, uh, could that necessarily lead to violence if you're using name calling as part of your way of arguing with one another? It's one thing to say, "Oh, you're mean," or "You're you're wicked," or "I can't believe you don't love me." But it's quite another to say, well then you're uh you're a parasite, you're a cockroach, you're a snake, you're a disease.
1: So it's funny because a lot of people actually agreed with you and with me. Yeah. So I wanna be part of your mm-hmm. correct analysis when the thing was published. Yeah. I mean, Hitler's story is remarkable. At 1920, he was an unknown loser. In 1925, not only does everyone know him in Germany, many know him outside of Germany, and there was this big rush to publish his book. He gets a big advance, but people aren't fooled. They're, at least they're not fooled at the exact same time. Reviews for the book are horrific. I mean, reviewers R- called him a political agitator who no longer understands the world. No, he's a hack. Yeah, and that's my. This is my favorite. His ideas come from a very twisted mind. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless,
0: he's building momentum. More and more people know about him. There's even Hitler Youth rallies all across the world, including right here in America, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to just dive in a little bit more to a few quotes, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about the window that they offer into this diseased mind. He who would live must fight. He who doesn't wish to fight in this world... Where permanent struggle is the law of life, has not the right to exist.
0: Yeah, man. Black and white, absolutism, good versus evil. I mean, he's setting up the moral argument there. Again, if you want to do violence, there's a couple of ways to go about it if you want to get away with it, if you want to get people on your side. One of them is to dehumanize, another one is to um, moralize, right? Moralize violence. If you've got the righteous, if you're righteous, if you've got the moral justification on your side, then you can do anything. You can do anything.
1: Sooner will a camel pass through the eye of a needle than Mm. a great man be found by an election. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) That
0: sounds a little bit like... I'm going to use some of the uh, Judeo-Christian philosophy ethos, if you will. I'm going to conflate some of the Christian kind of sounding stuff for my own twisted uh, ends. But he says right
1: there he doesn't believe in elections.
0: Yeah, I know. He's basically setting it up. He's saying, look, yeah. Democracy is not the way to success.
1: A great it's not the man way cannot be found no. by an election.
0: No. Wow. Only I can solve your problems. Only I can fix it. I mean, he's, setting, it, up, he's right? setting himself up as a strong man, isn't he?
1: Any violence which does not spring from a spiritual base will be wavering and uncertain. It lacks mm-hmm. the stability which can only rest in a fanatical outlook.
0: Moral certitude.
1: Any violence which does not spring from a spiritual base... Will be wavering and uncertain. So you need he's moral de- certainty. He's denouncing violence mm-hmm. in a roundabout way, but say you can't have violence without purpose.
0: Yeah, without moral without certitude. moral,
1: per- it lacks the yeah. stability which can only rest in a fanatical. I mean, outlook. think about
0: some modern political parties and how they—I don't want to say hijack, but how they co-opt or how they snuggle up against um, people that do have strong religious beliefs. Now, again, I don't need to tell you, but we've had some presidential candidates, and some presidents in the past handful of decades that have done this. Yeah. They've snuggled up against people who may not even think about politics.
1: Yeah. All right, so look, uh, from this last one, we know Hitler in 1925, unapologetic fascist, right? Yep. Based on all we've discussed up until this point, is it your opinion that in July 1925, Hitler is a sociopath? Yes. Okay, so in your opinion, these are ramblings of somebody not with a sane mind, but who is outside of their senses. And, and, you know, I think Jason would be really helpful. Could you like tell us what a sociopath is? And and isn't sociopathy well, rare? Well, isn't well, the, it very rare?
0: Um, it's not as rare as you might think. I mean, there've been several books written in the past couple of uh, decades that sort of get at how common sociopathy really is. Uh, There's a book called The Sociopath Next Door. Um, There's uh, books written that basically suggest that sociopathy affects about 8 to 10% of the population. So it's possible if you live on a street with 100 people that 8 to 10 of them are sociopaths. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to go full on like
1: Hitler. violent or Hitler. Right.
0: They're probably going to put their suit on in the morning and go to their board meeting in the afternoon and make decisions that are very selfish and in their own best interest. They're going to, you know, vote in a way that helps their friends and helps their loyalists. They're what gonna, is
1: what is the defining characteristic? Uh, the defining of a characteristic psychopath.
0: of a sociopath is someone who is superficial, glib, charismatic uh, in their demeanor. But in terms of their emotions, they are very much um, deliberate about their decision making and their behaviors. Insofar as they want, they they have a very selfish disposition. Can it be?
1: Can it be treated?
0: um, It can be treated, but not successfully. Typically, I mean, it's clinical psychologists call it antisocial personality disorder now. Right. It's referred to as antisocial personality disorder. Um, Now, the real danger, of course, with an antisocial personality is those who reject rules, reject boundaries, reject law and order, who basically say, you know what? I'm above and beyond. I'm outside of those rules. I'm so smart and so special that I should be able to either skirt the rules when I want to or make up my own rules. So they're definitely rebellious. They're definitely... The kind of personalities that reject authority.
1: Gotcha. All right. So by this point in our story, Hitler has gone from a loser with no future to a person who is still very much a loser because in 1928, the Nazis only managed 3% in the parliamentary elections, uh, but one with a very clear future and a future that crystallizes in 1930. After Wall Street collapses, the German economy, which was already weak, would get. Walloped. And the Nazis went from 3 to 18% of the vote and almost overnight became one of the biggest political parties in all of Europe. So talk a bit about the psychological impact of economic depressions, if you would.
0: Economic inequality, wealth inequality, why? the haves versus the have-nots.
1: But why does an economic problem often push people toward more extreme political positions? Because there's nothing else
0: left, I don't think.
1: It's a desperation.
0: It's it's the end of the rope. And, and you know, the the... The great Robert Reich, former labor secretary under uh, Bill Clinton, says that we haven't had the kind of income inequality, we haven't had the kind of spread between billionaires versus those that are in deep, destitute poverty in America since the Great Depression or before. And he said it's, it's worse in so many ways now than it ever has been. And he worries that this is going to lead to something really terrible, wow. uh, you know, A stock market crash is one thing, but an uprising is quite another. And you are hearing, not just on the fringes, but you are hearing in more casual conversation. You are hearing on nightly news stations, guests. Speaking in terms of violent overthrows, in well, terms of taking up arms, in terms of taking country back, in terms yeah. using these terms like in, fight like hell, yeah, the same kind of terminology you heard in Mein Kampf.
1: Well, what scares me more is not the politicians using those words because I still believe and have long believed that politics, exceptional politicians, can guide public opinion. The vast majority reflect it. Mm -hmm. When you see a majority of Americans believing that civil war in their lifetime is is, is is, going to happen... And many of them
0: saying it's the only way to sort of get us back on the right track.
1: Well, that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Throughout my lifetime, I've heard the question, how could the German people have allowed this to happen? Because let's not forget... Hitler was democratically elected.
1: He was never democratically elected. Okay. The Hitler Nazi was, Party was Hitler
0: was elected.
1: The Nazi, Nazi Party, Party was, was democratically, democratically elected. But
0: Hitler was elected. Yes. I saw a poll just a few days ago, Rasmussen or one of those. They asked likely Trump voters, would you vote for Donald Trump if he served if he was serving in prison? 23% of them said yes.
1: Well, that's a lower number than I expected.
0: My God. I mean, I guess he was right. You that's know, probably, once got that's you,
1: probably like, you know, 15 million Americans yeah. would say, yeah, sure. But that's a pretty small slice of the American population. It's
0: still huge when you consider here's a guy who was twice impeached and possibly could do jail time. And they're saying, look, he can be in jail the entire presidency. I'm I'm voting for him. I think he's so good that he could run the country from jail.
1: Well, I'm sure. I'm sure he. Not that this is the point, but I'm sure he'd pardon himself and get out of jail, were he to be elected to the presidency from uh, from cell block E.
0: <laughs> well, maybe he goes to jail and he gets an epiphany and he puts pencil to paper like Hitler did and and writes something as influential as Mein Kampf
1: or The Art of the Deal. <laughs>
0: Maybe he writes the art of the kind.
1: So, look, we got one more segment. I really want to get into um, the lead up to the Second World War, um, especially after 33, talk a little bit about the Reichstag fire and uh, some of the uh, developments within the crazy mind of our subject.
0: Yeah, let's do that on the other side. All right. So in the last leg, we're last, almost home.
1: Last leg. So look, after thirty-two, um, the Nazis become the largest political party in Germany. They have the right to pick the chancellor, mm-hmm. and so they pick Adolf Hitler. But under the German constitution, power is split pretty evenly between the Hammer von Hindenburg and between Hitler. So okay. in 33, they have the Reichstag fire, and this is February 1933. They have the Reichstag fire. The Parliament agrees to vote all powers to Adolf Hitler. They put all the powers of Germany into the chancellery. Hitler immediately suspends freedom of the press, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera, and the rest is history. So after 33, copies of Mein Kampf fly off the shelves. Goebbels and Hitler begin to focus on mass propaganda, and every person who works in the government is given a copy of the book. By 36, German newlyweds get a copy when they are married. Mm -hmm. By the way, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, every time the state buys a copy of the book, the head of state... Uh, benefits financially he ends up getting something like 12 million dollars from all the purchases of Mein Kampf. so they started to sell it in dozens of different formats braille commemorative with a marble cover wow. one looks like a bible can you briefly talk about the psychological power and purpose of propaganda and this new effort by goebbels and hitler to control all information how long does something like that take really uh to begin to dominate a population I'm sure it's like one by two, but...
0: It's already started by the time you get there, right? It might already sure. be ended by the time. There's only one media source left, whether it be the state or otherwise. Chances are people have already bought into what you're saying. So I don't I don't know that it would be that much worse than it already was. I, I think about that even to this day. We live in a country that... Has very few newspapers left. Sure, very few news magazines left, and honestly, very few news programs. What we do have are just these entertainment talking heads. We don't have a lot of news anymore.
1: In my political science classes, I actually use the term Mm self-propagandizing. Right, we're sort of isolating ourselves, self-segregating.
0: Yeah, into these silos, and there's not many. And and here's the thing: I wouldn't mind if there were a lot of silos, but there's only a couple now. Yeah, right. Think about it. There's only a couple. Here we are. In the information age.
1: Limiting our intake of information. (laughs) And and
0: we're limiting purposely our intake of information to basically two or three sources. Now, I Mm. I know you might be saying, well, there's Newsmax and there's Fox and there's MSNBC and there's CNBC. Yeah, but honestly, like it's the same cats that own most
1: of them. Absolutely. Well, look, propaganda efforts back then weren't uh, confined to one book. This was a state, this became a state devoid of outside information. There were no foreign newspapers allowed. There were youth programs designed specifically to indoctrinate children. Uh, in fact, Pope Benedict was a member of the Hitler Youth. It was, uh, it was mandatory. It was compulsory.
0: Yeah, A lot of people blamed the Pope for um, a lot of the what went pope. on. Yes, yeah. the old
1: Pope. Absolutely. Uh, and films like Triumph of the Will meant to corrupt the minds of mm. the broader world and received awards in Paris. I mean, People raved about this film. So we all know what happens from 33 onward. Hitler builds his Reich through lies, theft, and violence. And I think it is important to circle back to a question you asked. I do have students ask me year in and year out throughout my career Mm -hmm. in bewilderment. How how could could something like that happen in a modern country in the 20th century? Yeah. So yeah, we're talking about Hitler, but at least I do want want to spend some time on the experience that was Mm -hmm. living through the rise and fall of the Reich.
0: I think the social psychologists probably have it as close to dead on as, as anyone, from Philip Zimbardo, the famous Stanford professor who did the prison study in the 1970s, to the modern social, social psychologist today, most of them argue that whether you're talking about being kind, being jealous, successful, or being violent, being biased, being prejudiced, you don't need bad people. You don't need certain personalities. You don't need great speakers you don't need pretty emblems all that stuff helps but really what you need is opportunity in other words i think philip zimbardo's notion of there are no bad apples it's just sometimes the apples find themselves in a vat of vinegar it's not like there's one bad apple and and then there's another bad apple and they come together and they spoil each other no it's they find themselves in the same place at the same time, I got you. being spoiled by the environment, right? They're the, you know, does a fish know it's wet? No. So, do any of these people who are in these silos? Did any of the people really in Germany know where they were headed? Some did. Not. some did, some did, but most didn't.
1: didn't. There was, there was, there was resistance. In fact, in thirty two, Hitler runs for office. Right? He's rejected. Yeah. People looked at him even in thirty two as sort of a clownish, weird weak looking figure. Um, so is it is it like a a drip 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 effect? Is it a frog in boiling water type of thing where people kinda don't realize how serious and dangerous this person is until because they're so extreme. So they're easy to dismiss until it's too late. It's too late.
0: Yeah. I mean look, read Elvisel's night, read any of those guys that survived the Holocaust, right? And they say, you know, first they came for one group of people, yep, then they came for another. And basically, what most people did in the neighborhoods was just put their heads down and go, "Oh, at least they're not coming for me."
1: Yeah, Or maybe um, I mean they must have done something.
0: Maybe quiet resistance, right? Maybe quiet resistance. But yeah, it's tough.
1: So as Hitler builds this machine toward war, uh, he racks up victory after victory, of course, the annexation of Austria the Sudetenland, the non-aggression pact with Stalin, and he seems to develop a sort of delusional God complex. Mm. So, first of all, I want to know, is this necessary for sociopathy, or is it like, are all sociopaths narcissistic? Probably. Um, probably
0: Probably all sociopaths are somewhat narcissistic, and I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg, the narcissism or the sociopathy, but they do seem to go hand in hand, yeah.
1: Well, over 40 people tried to kill, there were only... Forty plots discovered to assassinate the Führer, um, and, and it just it just reinforces this cons- uh, this, this belief, paranoia. Mm-hmm. this concept of being unique, divinely blessed, or you know, divinely sent. Or but also paranoia, so now, right? Absolutely, it did increase his paranoia. Which
0: I, I I think it would be very difficult to be someone on that biggest stage, whether you were doing good or evil, and not feel paranoid from time to time. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes if I there's any true. world leader that doesn't have a, a, an abnormal paranoia. Even well,
1: I don't know that you have to be a world leader. I tell you from my experience <laughs> on a, a local board, you worry about. Especially, there were many times where people that my wife and I thought we were friends with said some very ugly things about us. Got whipped as, up in the frenzy, yeah, the, and yeah. you're just like it. It does make when you receive any type of criticism. I think it makes it harder to trust. Uh, yourself harder to trust that person criticism um, public criticism of any kind i think can kind of isolate you and remove you from the group so look we're trying to cover every base here with this man's brain i think we've done some good work but without question Hitler reviewed himself as i said as the savior of germany and often refused to confront any reality that challenges delusion uh, his physical and mental health especially throughout the war leave open many questions but it is known that he took barbiturates methamphetamines opiates mm-hmm. Uh, he regularly took cocaine, although that was a commonly prescribed uh, medicine for sinus infection. In fact, a little fun sidebar, on the day of Pearl Harbor, um, FDR uh, took cocaine. Yeah. You know.
0: And dentists were using it as well as an anesthetic, sure, a low sure. anesthetic.
1: So precisely how often he took these and the impact these drugs played on his overall mental health can't be fully known. But can drugs like these change personality and lead to mental illness? Because he was uh, taking them.
0: Yeah, but it's not likely with cocaine um, Okay, it's going to lead to mental illness. Barbiturates,
1: opiates, and methamphetamines? Yeah, I guess if you take enough of them in
0: the right kind of combinations, possibly. I mean, I'm no drug so do expert. You th-
1: do, you, do you think this is a way... Could have
0: made him even more mad, or even more.
1: But do, so you don't look, look at these drugs as... Leading to Hitler's personality. No, if anything, I think a lot. Amplifying it, maybe?
0: Yeah, most likely amplifying, most likely making him more paranoid, most likely making him more depressed at times, more suicidal. The drugs may have been a way of trying to cope. So something within him was telling him, look, what you're doing is not right, man. Something's out of balance here. That's one way to look at drug addiction is that people aren't just making the choice to do drugs, right? Their brain is hijacked by these chemicals. And maybe they didn't make the sole choice to do the drugs in the first place, but it was the situation they were in that made them want to grab um, that drug, As right? the
1: tide of war turns, Hitler's health declines even more. He retreats into the Fuhrer bunker, uh, very rarely seen outside for the last few months. And he sees the war crumbling. He sees the Reich crumbling evidence from... People who were in the bunker, he was very angry with the German people, felt betrayed by yeah. the German military. He's he's ready to end it. I, I, there are people, and I should say this, there are a lot of people who believe, and I, I'd, get, I'd love to get your take on this. A lot of people believe that Hitler escaped to Argentina. <laughs> now, I personally do not believe, and you've studied some of Hitler, we've had this podcast yeah. I don't believe that somebody like this had a capacity for life beyond the Reich. I, I just don't think he no, had the out capacity of the to live out of the limelight like that. So I, I'm almost certain he committed suicide. Now here's how he committed suicide, and our friend Bob Brennan would really um, he'd be upset by the story. Hitler was paranoid that he would not be able to successfully kill himself; he would chicken out somehow. So he asked his physician what the best way to commit suicide was. And his his physician said, well, you need to double up. We need to make sure that you have like a little cyanide here and take the gun and kill yourself after you have the cyanide before it really sets in. Wow. That way, if one fails, the other backs you up. Still wasn't convinced. So what did he do? He called his beloved friend and companion Blondie, his German shepherd. Yeah. Blondie. Yeah. The Führer has something for you. And he feeds the feeds Blondie the, uh, the cyanide. And
0: by the way, this he is a man who loved his, loved his dog. Loved his dog.
1: Well, he was, uh, now, not to his credit, he was afraid, I'm told, I've heard that he was afraid that his dog would fall into enemy hands too. Yeah, so they tortured the dog. I, I don't think it was ever a doubt that they would. But, you know, it's so funny. We teach, you know, I teach the Holocaust, World War II to my yeah. students. And you know we go through the horrors and the atrocities of the Holocaust and the final solution. And my my students they've heard it before. They sit there. Most of them hadn't hadn't heard the dog story. And when I tell them about the dog, they react they oh, he yeah. killed his dog? Yeah, it's sadder than uh, the, like, the fact that he killed 6 million. Yeah, but million didn't years. you just hear what I said about the Jewish people? I was like, yeah, but a dog? Uh, I just it just reminded me of our last episode, the attachment that people have to dogs. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, the last story I'll tell also has to do with um, our friend Bob Brennan. He was uh, in Germany last year, I believe, on a trip to Europe, went to Berlin, said he was um just kind of walking around and he was thinking about, you know, the events um, leading up to Hitler's death and the um, the when the Allied forces showed up. Uh, in general, and he said, I could hear church bells ringing. And he said, I thought to myself, these are probably the same church bells that were ringing when Hitler took his own life. This was wow. probably the last thing Hitler did. Wow. Heard. I was like, that's pretty, pretty That's poignant.
1: pretty crazy. Yeah. So in the years since it happened, there have been many uh, accounts of Hitler's life and, and the speculation about what it was that drove him. Uh, Psychiatrists in just the last 30 years have given him diagnoses ranging from uh, antisocial personality disorder, paranoia, histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar. I mean, they're, they're, even schizophrenia, I've yeah, heard, right? whole DSM. Even schizophrenia. Just throw the whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do want to get your diagnosis. Uh, but before we do, I want to say one thing and ask one final question. It is uh, an exciting exercise to explore the past uh, or issues or people on this podcast with you. Doing so in no way can ever excuse the behavior of the most evil man in history. Exploration, trying to figure out what drove somebody, is not trying to forgive somebody for all that they've done and for the horrible things that they have wrought.
0: No. Description is not prescription.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: You can tell what was and what is without saying what should be or what should have been.
1: So we briefly touched on this a second ago, but... Here's my question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Famous conspiracy theory, as I mentioned, Hitler flies to Argentina. Mm-hmm. Forget the logistics, how it would work, how it would get out. Yeah, I've argued many times that this man that we have studied did not possess the capacity to explore life after the end of the Reich. He couldn't do it. I, like most historians, are confident that his life ended in the Fuhrer bunker. There's so many conspiracy theories out there now. I want to at least try to put one to bed in a little small way. Based on what you know, you said earlier, Hitler does not strike you as the person who could live past the Reich. No. Okay. Why not? not? What is it about somebody so committed to something that they couldn't live past it?
0: Because that's their entire identity.
1: Even if he was trying to rebuild it. And it
0: took him that many years to build the identity he had. And that added in, it was built on something very fragile. I think about modern politicians to this day. Again, I don't need to call any names, but there are people who have billions of dollars. They've been quite successful by their own admission. They're fragile. Perhaps risen to the highest levels of political office. They've skirted their way out of trouble. They've really procured everything throughout their life but they just cannot go away into the sunset. Even as they approach death's door in their 80s, they just can't. They can't go away. They can't go away. Nope. Good or bad or ugly, they can't go away. I don't think Warren Buffett Buffett will ever go away. Pretty good guy, from my understanding, other than his relationship with his daughter.
1: Is that need for relevance an addiction? Need for relevance is human. It's human. Yeah, we all
0: need to be relevant. We all need need to to feel relevant. And we all want to leave a legacy. You know, people have asked me already multiple times, why are you doing this podcast? You say you're not running any ads or making any money right now. Why do it? Isn't it taking a long time? And you don't have that many listeners. I mean, what, you got a 1,000 downloads? What's that? I'm like, look, I'm doing this because it's a an exercise. It's something that I feel good about doing. It's something that I'll be able to leave and my children would be able to click on the internet one day when I'm gone yeah. and hear my voice and hear my thoughts.
1: Yeah. And get a Never sense of what them. my humor my was. My grandchildren, my great grandchildren. Absolutely. Wow. I can think of worse awesome.
0: things to leave
1: than yeah, worse yeah. legacies. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's give them a nugget. It's time. What type of diagnosis would you give to uh, Adolf Hitler, the father of evil? What would you diagnose? And you don't have to limit yourself to one. You can do some of the others. But uh, what the hell is wrong with this guy?
0: To use Freud's terminology, this guy had mommy and daddy issues, man. Okay. I'm just kidding. He was indeed a narcissistic sociopath. I mean, that's what I'd give him, antisocial personality. And narcissism, comorbid, he'd have them both.
1: So I I wanted to ask you one final question, because I thought you were going to go there. Crazy childhood, all that stuff. We live here in the southeast of North Carolina. We get hurricanes. And I always wonder, with all the ingredients um, that are seemingly ripe for almost constant destruction in the United States, out in the Caribbean, um, you know, in the mid-Atlantic, so few storms, even during this period, actually become... Monsters. Mm -hmm. Why is it that so few people who endure the type of behavior or the type of environment that Hitler did early on, who struggle with employment, who become homeless, et cetera, et cetera, why do so few of those people actually become monsters? Are they just apples looking for that vat of vinegar? Or, I mean, what is it that makes one person become an antisocial personality? And another person become a great artist.
0: I don't know. I wish I did. I'd probably win a Nobel Prize or at least a a medal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, sir, our second uh, we've gone from a great man, Sigmund Freud, to a uh, an uh, evil man, an evil man, uh, but an important man in uh, Adolf Hitler. What do you think we should uh, do next?
0: Well, you know, here at put him on the couch. We're an equal opportunity putter on the coucher. Uh, We do pets. We do people. We'll do it all. I'd like to do comedy, humor.
1: That's not funny.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's not funny. Again, got a psychologist and a comedian who recently got some bad news. I'd like to have her on.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's Uh, do it. I got another
0: gentleman. I'm hopeful he'll come on. He um, suffered a tragic, life changing accident when he was in college, and he has also become a comedian. Kind of want to explore this connection between tragedy and comedy.
1: Yeah, I think we really should. I think the Greeks might have something to say about that. Yeah. So we can do it from a number of perspectives, as we always do. Uh, how close are we to our 1,000 downloads, buddy?
0: Oh, uh, man, we're less than 100 away.
1: We're getting there. And we're remember, there. You the 1,000
0: download is going to get something right? special. Yeah. We- some of you guys have already seen the hoodies that I've been posting. We've got some uh, merchandise that's going to be available in the next couple of weeks, so look for that. Hats, shirts, um Maybe some coffee mugs. You name it.
1: All right, guys. Hey,
0: thanks for for listening. And uh, we always, always appreciate your support and your feedback.
1: Like and subscribe, please.
0: Thanks a lot. Later, guys. See you next time.